Mom, You're Amazing, Changing the World One Life at a Time by Jenny Dean Schmidt. Read this preface. It matters. I recently accompanied our teenage daughter to a boy band concert. I was mildly horrified at the thought of being the oldest person in the audience. As it turned out, other old parents were there too. Maybe those parents were trying to keep their teens inside the same protective bubble wrap I've kept my kids in for years. As I watched the adulating arms in the audience, worshiping the band members with one hand and holding their phones in the other, I thought to myself, who raised these babies? What unseen moms are behind these happy young faces? I wondered this because the kids in that audience, most of them, owe much of their existence to the moms that got them this far. At the moment I begin this book, I am typing with my pajamas on. My hair is unbrushed. My glasses are smudged. Yesterday's mascara is now under my eyes. I have two drinking containers on my desk and an empty cereal bowl on the floor. One child sleeps in the room to my left, the other in the room to my right. The desk where I work sits in the hallway cubby between my children's bedrooms. The crock pot still languishes in the kitchen, displaying the remains of last night's dinner. It's almost noon on a Saturday. There's something very typical about my Saturday's state of affairs. Most moms can identify with the messy consequences of putting their kids before their own needs. They're familiar with the thankless nature of sacrifice for the love of a child. And no, I'm not just talking about stay-at-home moms or homeschooling moms or holier-than-thou moms. I'm talking about every kind of mom. This book is for every woman who has ever mothered, whatever her shape, size, color, background, or neighborhood. From the first to the last mom featured in these pages, the focus is on the amazing value of moms. Whether you've been a mom for biological children, adopted children, foster children, grandchildren, or anyone else you've found to mother, this book is for you. My passion is to help each mom realize her incredible importance, the importance of her position as a mom. I think we forget how big a mother's job is. Moms have been charged with raising the next generation. If they do it well, the world benefits. If they do it poorly, the world suffers. Darrell L. Miller once wrote, The death of motherhood leads very quickly to the death of nations. How often do nations recognize that moms hold them together? And how often does the world thank moms for children well-raised? Maybe once a year, on Mother's Day. Perhaps you're a mom who feels overwhelmed, underappreciated, and undervalued by our world. Author Julie Royce says that instead of undervaluing motherhood, we should, quote, seek to restore motherhood in the eyes of the culture, promoting it as an essential component of a flourishing society, as well as a high spiritual calling. I love how Royce extols the value of moms. I don't think we value motherhood enough. Oh, our culture pays lip service to the idea of mom and apple pie, but it hardly ever broadcasts the virtues of motherhood. In fact, our societal oversight probably gave birth to the common phrase, I'm just a mom. But oh, my dear mom, you are so much more than just. Allow me to prove it to you. You're about to get a front row seat as fellow moms reveal the secrets behind their amazingness. You'll discover how they feel like you, struggle like you, cry like you, and laugh like you. And they'll prove that every mom can find multiple ways to be amazing for her kids. 
I've chosen to feature seven different moms. Each has an incredible story and an unforgettable secret of good mothering. My own mothering opinions pop up in my conversations with these moms. I try to share my opinions with grace because I don't want one sentence of this book to make you feel judged or less than. I simply want you to see the indispensable value of your mothering role, the care of the creator applied through the hands and hearts of moms. By the end of the book, I hope you see yourself as a holy vessel on a critical mission of raising the next generation. In the end, I've written this book because the story of a mom is important. Not one of the moms I portray is perfect. They'd all admit their flaws. In fact, the well-known son of one mom said his mother taught him that we didn't have to be perfect. She knew she wasn't perfect. It was learn as you go. It was more that she showed us that she wasn't perfect and that allowed us to grow instead of trying to be something that isn't possible. I mean, you can't be perfect. Beyond their imperfections, each of the moms in this book has a special mothering secret to pass along to you. My prayer is that God will cause the secrets and stories from these seven moms to uplift you, invigorate you, instruct you, inspire you, and motivate you in your daily walk as a mom. And may you come to know that you're amazing because you're changing the world one life at a time. Chapter 1, Embracing Motherhood, Jenny Dean Schmidt. On the day of the school shooting, I wasn't sure if my husband would live. On the day I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I didn't know if I would pull through. And on that life-changing day when our first child was born, I wasn't sure if I could be a good mom. I guess I'll go first, but certainly not because my story is more important than the seven moms who follow me. Their lives are noteworthy. Their stories are incredible. I believe their stories will encourage you in your mothering story. Honestly, I'm not sure my mom credentials compare to theirs. But if love of the job is a credential, then I most definitely qualify. I love being mom. I love that role in my own life. And I love it in the lives of billions of women who have carried the mothering banner throughout history. I believe with all my heart that the sacrifice of motherhood is beautiful. I love the evolving beauty of being a mom. I find infinite delight in raising children. I treasure from here to eternity the babies that I birthed. I love them, I hold them, I teach them, I scold them. I would die for my children, but I didn't always feel this way. I wasn't really someone who made big plans to become a mother. As a young girl, I aspired to be somebody to make my mark in the world. Having babies was not necessarily part of that plan. I grew up in an educated, intellectual, middle-class family in the Midwest. I had dedicated parents and a stable home life. I did well in school, but decided not to pursue the academic life of my family. I wanted to be pretty and popular. I wanted to be approved of and admired. During childhood, I had two very specific goals. Number one, to marry my nursery school sweetheart. And number two, to become a TV reporter. When I grew up, I did both. I guess I was a fairly ambitious kid. I actually began to prepare myself for a television career while I was still in high school. I worked as a DJ for my small town radio station and then interned at a cable TV station near my home. 
In college, I worked for a television production company in Hollywood, writing script snippets for the former wife of late-night TV host Johnny Carson. Near the end of my college days, I designed an international fellowship that would allow me to work as an intern for BBC Television in London. BBC initially declined my naive proposal, but then a kind-hearted producer from somewhere in the bowels of a gargantuan BBC building came across my written request for an internship. He somehow convinced somebody they should give me a shot. I packed my bags and set out for London, all by myself. I wasn't part of a program. I wasn't an exchange student. I didn't have a host family. I just landed at Heathrow Airport with approximately seven suitcases, looking like a clueless American. I moved into a little flat with a divorced mom from Poland and her preteen daughter. I walked into BBC with an optimistic vision of being put to work in their prestigious documentary department and then writing my senior thesis about my experience. In retrospect, I'm not sure they really knew what to do with me. I think I was later told that I was the only American intern at BBC ever. In the end, I learned a lot about how the world-renowned broadcasting giant worked. I conducted interviews. I watched the production process. I even worked at a special anti-drug event that featured Princess Diana and had the privilege of saying hi to the beautiful, shy icon. My internship at BBC paved the way for me to land a job at ABC News in Washington, D.C., almost immediately after I graduated from college. I worked at ABC during the Reagan years and near the end of the Cold War. After my years at ABC, I moved on to a stint as an associate producer for the McNeil Lair NewsHour on PBS, also in D.C. The demands of working in TV news and the bustling D.C. market eventually had me pining for something more familiar. And familiar had a name. Michael Allen Schmidt. Mike had been my sweetheart from nursery school through college. During our long courtship, we'd broken up approximately 22 times. Not kidding. After I made a long-distance move to rekindle our relationship, Mike and I finally married in 1989 in my parents' backyard in Minnesota. At our prenuptial meeting with the minister, we told him we did not expect to have children. Oh, how things change. After getting married, I continued to pursue my career in television, which honestly had become my newfound religion. I secured my first job as an on-air television reporter in Southern California. Achieving my childhood dream of reporting the news on TV made me an idol, though mostly to myself. I came to find my meaning, my identity, my purpose, and my self-worth from being on a screen that implied success. My broadcast career would end up putting me in the employ of five different TV networks at stations across the nation. During that time, I had the privilege of interviewing history makers and world changers. I had a sit-down interview with former U.S. President Gerald Ford and questioned President-to-be Bill Clinton at a pre-campaign press conference. I also interviewed a wide array of celebrities from the 80s and 90s, including Priscilla Presley, Hulk Hogan, Oral Hershiser, ZZ Top, and Sonny Bono. Oddly enough, I ended up developing a friendship with Sonny and his fourth wife, Mary. It happened in the years I reported at the NBC TV affiliate in Palm Springs, California. Although Sonny had experienced stratospheric fame during the days of the Sonny and Cher show, he'd managed to remain humble. In fact, he was quick to talk about how rapidly famous can turn into forgotten and celebrity can turn sour. Sonny knew this from very personal experience. 
as he learned to be good-humored about being the butt of jokes in his guest appearances on TV shows like The Love Boat. This former superstar had come to realize the fleeting and false nature of fame. It had turned on him and left him humbled. It was actually his humility that made Sonny a joy to be around. He was authentic and gracious. As mayor of Palm Springs and then congressman from that same district, he truly seemed to enjoy serving people. A perfect illustration of Sonny's authentic generosity came on the day he met my mother-in-law. My husband's mom had come to visit us in Palm Springs. We'd made plans to take her to meet Sonny at a restaurant he owned in the area. My husband and I both hoped she'd be giddy over the opportunity to meet Mr. Bono and have something to tell her friends back in Minnesota. Upon arriving at the restaurant, we were disappointed to learn that Sonny had gone home for the evening. Somehow, one of the staff got word to him that we were hoping we could give my mother-in-law the thrill of an introduction. So Sonny left his house and came back to the restaurant to humor one middle-aged mom from Minnesota. He made a big fuss over her, asking her questions about her life in the Midwest and making her feel like she was the celebrity, not him. Celebrities were just a small part of my reporting days. I also interviewed politicians and pundits and world leaders. Getting access to historical figures and being paid to report on historical events were perks of the job. Sometimes I feel like I've lived a Forrest Gump kind of life because I've come face to face with so many history makers and history making events over the years. I loved those perks and I cherished my career, but I was also ashamed of it. I was ashamed of the fact that TV news is the epitome of our culture glamorizing the wrong things for the wrong reasons. Overall, broadcast news deserves its bad reputation. Good journalism is often sacrificed in favor of sensationalism. This formula creates a vulture mentality in the news business. I witnessed multiple examples of vulture journalism during my 15 years in TV. One incident involved a fire in a small town store in Ohio. The store stocked gunpowder, so the fire quickly became explosive. Our newsroom kept getting updates on the number of people injured or killed in the explosions. At one point, when we were given the latest body count, I remember a news staffer reading the copy and yelling to one of the anchors, Oh, it's getting better and better. Now there are three dead, and two of them are kids. On another Birds of Prey Newsday, our newsroom got reports of a window washer falling to his death from a high-rise. I remember one of the producers reacting with a little celebration, not hiding her merriment over the fact that she now had a great lead for the evening's news. TV news can be a nasty business, as news personalities make their living off of other people's tragedies. But there's a more subtle tragedy going on behind the scenes. Viewers may detest the media for what it portrays on their screens, but they also glorify media personalities because they happen to be on those screens. It's ironic. These personalities with their perfectly coiffed hair and made-up faces get honored for spewing news about murders, car wrecks, scandals, and tragedies of the day. I discovered personally how the public honors people whose faces adorn their screens through the special treatment I received when I was a reporter. In some ways, I lived the glamorous life of a famous person. Of course, I wasn't on the level of media superstars, but people treated me as a local celebrity, asking for my autograph and offering me free dinners. Unfortunately, I bought into this special attention. I allowed it to deceive me into thinking I was more important than other people just because I happened to be on TV. 
It wasn't until I became a mom that I realized how I'd been seduced by the celebrity treatment I received as a TV broadcaster. It became clear to me that our culture glorifies people who are visible. These glorified folks are not necessarily honored because they're contributing great things to our world. They're honored because they're recognizable. Our pop culture makes a big deal over people like the Kardashians just because of their public personas. The famous honored for being famous. We don't idolize the nameless people who feed the hungry or tend to the sick. Instead, we worship people who make touchdowns or TikTok videos. Our children are told that success means becoming major league ball players or supermodels, potentially demeaning millions of kids who won't become those things. As our kids prepare for adulthood, society tells them it's more important to be in the NFL than to be a good neighbor, or it's better to be on the cover of people than to help people in need, or that earning tons of cash is superior to rearing a child with a lot less cash. When being rich and famous is our biggest ideal, we're often overlooking the folks who give the most to our world. People like moms, people like dads, people who are shaping the future of our world by the way in which they raise their children. Are celebrities celebrated because they're making the world a better place? Usually not. More likely, it's for their latest movie or Academy Award. My point is not to bash celebrities. I'm simply pointing out what we're up against as moms. Being a mother has never been a path to fame and fortune. But in the 21st century, moms are bombarded by millions of messages from cyberspace, television, radio, movies, magazines, iPads, and iPhones. Messages that suggest we moms are nobodies. We're told that what we do as moms is not really important or noteworthy. That is why it has become my mission to help moms like you see the amazing value of your mothering, no matter what our culture is saying to you. One reason I feel strongly about helping moms see their ultimate value is that I had to do it for myself. Like many American women, I thought I was supposed to aim for that celebrity ideal. As I strived for that image, I began to believe that what made me most valuable was my hair, my face, my body, my sex appeal, my dress size, oh, for goodness sake, and also having a successful career in television. I leaned into all of these things for my sense of self-worth and personal identity. And then came motherhood. Out of the blue, ticking clock, I guess, I suddenly decided that I very much wanted to be a mom. I was about 32 and working at the ABC affiliate in Cleveland. When I told my husband about my baby fever, he was mildly shocked. As it turned out, it wasn't as easy as wanting to be a mom. It took us a while. Doctors decided we needed to be put on a regimen for dealing with infertility. We went with the more affordable infertility treatments for several months. The third month was supposed to be the final try, and we'd been told that our chances didn't look good. After that third month, I remember taking the pregnancy test and being overjoyed. I think I planned some corny reveal to let my husband know our good news. Nearly nine months later, our baby boy arrived in a difficult birth. I had been in labor with very slow progress for almost two days when we finally went to the hospital on a Sunday morning. By this time, I was feeling exhausted. However, I told my husband and my doula that I did not want to have an epidural. I wanted to give birth naturally. Hours after arriving at the hospital and after over an hour of pushing, one of the nurses said something like, uh-oh, 
The nurse had just discovered that our baby was covered in meconium, the baby's stool within the placenta. In addition to that life-threatening issue, his pulse was dropping rapidly because the umbilical cord was wrapped around his neck. They announced a code yellow over the speaker and the medical staff sprang into action. My doula and my husband told me that I had to push as hard as I could. They said this because they knew an emergency C-section would be my next option, and that could have been dangerous for both me and our baby. In that must-push moment, I remember thinking that I was so exhausted I could hardly imagine lifting my head, let alone pushing. But with my husband quietly holding me, I pushed with all the might I could muster in those tension-filled seconds. By the grace of God, it was enough. Our baby was born, but he was in jeopardy. The room fell eerily quiet as doctors and nurses worked to suck meconium out of our baby's mouth and throat to make sure it didn't get into his lungs and compromise his breathing. I don't think they gave him that little hit on the back that prompted him to breathe until they were all done clearing him out. The only noise in the room was the sucking sound of the vacuum. We waited and waited, and then our baby boy cried for the first time. We cried too. Our first child had arrived and we were overwhelmed. So incredibly grateful. We named him Otis Dean Schmidt. I remember holding him in the hospital room, carefully inspecting his little limbs and hands and feet, realizing that I had never loved anything more than him. The love a mother has for her child simply cannot be measured. Just months after becoming a mom, I lost my prized job in television. A newly hired news director made the decision not to renew my contract. At the time, I considered my job loss a devastating blow. I faced a very tough transition from being labeled important as a TV broadcaster to being not important as a mom. The world had offered me accolades for my position and my prestige. For years, I'd received compliments for things like my clothes, my voice, and how I looked on TV. But my mothering? People weren't rushing up to tell me what a fine mother I was. They weren't complimenting me for my commitment to raising my child well. Certainly, nobody was asking for my autograph. Oh, wow, you're a mom? Can I have your autograph? That didn't happen. Truth be told, if a mom had to wait on other people's affirmation in order to know her worth, she'd have to wait a very long time. Letting my media identity go and gaining a new identity for myself, as a wife, a mother, and eventually as a child of God, was very difficult for me. Do you know there are people in my little town who lost interest in talking to me once they found out I was no longer on TV? To them, I wasn't important anymore. I find a kindred spirit in the writings of Julie Royce, who also believes our culture doesn't respect the role of motherhood. Royce suggests we should be cheering on moms, reminding them that, quote, even in its most reduced form, motherhood is one of the most crucial roles in all of culture. The family is a fundamental building block of society. So nurturing the next generation is essential if societies are to thrive. When I entered motherhood, I longed almost daily for that old sense of TV self-worth. I held fast to the idea that my television job mattered more than my mom job. I would even introduce myself to people like this. Well, I used to be a TV reporter, but now I'm a stay-at-home mom. Yikes! Happily, that pathetic introduction eventually faded away as I adopted a different value system. I began to realize, ever so slowly, the value that God saw in my motherhood. 
It was a gradual transformation that unfolded over the first several years of my being mom to Otis. But before my transformation, I had to face the upside down realities of losing my job, my identity, and my sense of significance. The loss of those big things caused me to spiral into a debilitating postpartum depression. And it was classic. I saw more dark than light. I could no longer see the point of it all. I'd look at my baby and think morbid thoughts like, he's just going to die one day, and I'm going to die before he does. Life seemed futile. I struggled daily with thoughts of pointlessness and hopelessness. I felt bad. Fortunately, I did not feel bad about my baby. I was able to nurse him, hold him, coo over him, and care for him. I'm aware that postpartum sometimes disables mom's emotions in a way that makes it hard for them to nurture and love. I loved our baby more than I'd known I was capable of loving anyone. However, I still felt sad. To top it off, I felt bad about feeling sad, especially as a new mama with a healthy baby. When my depression started, I began to seek hope in a variety of gods. Desperate to find anything to light up my dark perspective, I sought out seers and Googled gurus. I consulted spiritualists and searched for sages. I even attended a seminar on hearing angelic voices. Then, in the midst of my search, I stumbled upon the God of the Bible, unexpectedly. We had moved west from Cleveland to a little mountain town outside Denver. I'd taken a part-time job at a TV station in the Mile High City, so I split my time between the reporting job and my other job as part-time, stay-at-home mom. Unfortunately, the move to Mile High Living failed to lift my spirits a mile high. The struggle with depression plagued me. I began to pray regularly, asking my vague image of God to help me climb out of the dark pit. Maybe, as an answer to my prayers, an acquaintance invited me to a Bible study. I began reading scripture regularly, and I scoured the ancient text for answers, for a way, any way, to get beyond the darkness. Then one day, I decided I needed to get over myself in order to find what I was looking for. I thought I'd change my perspective with a day of volunteering at a special Olympics event. I figured if those smiling competitors couldn't cheer me up, nothing could. But they did not bring me cheer. In fact, I recall walking around a little garden that was near the event with my son in a stroller, telling God I couldn't take much more. I was losing my desire to stay alive. After that dark declaration, I dropped by my parents' home in Denver. Neither my mom nor my dad were there at the time. I remember going into their master bathroom, falling down on the floor, and crying out to God. I recall thinking something like, I don't care if my intellectual family thinks it's stupid to call on Jesus. I'm going to do it anyway. I uttered this plea. Jesus, will you please save me? After that simple prayer, I got up and took my baby back to our home in the foothills. The house was getting dark. I turned on some lights and headed to the bedroom to change Otis's diaper. I remember turning the radio on to a random station to provide some background music. I did not consider myself a Christian in those days, so I didn't purposely listen to Christian music. As I began changing my baby boy, he reached out to hug my neck. I recall being surprised by his hug during a diaper change. I thought, this is weird. He's never done this before. But I leaned down, accepted his little hug, and then quickly stood up. With baby boys, a mom likes to avoid being in firing range. As I went on changing him, he insisted on pulling me down and giving me hugs. About the fourth or fifth time he reached up to hug me, I remember thinking, this is so strange. His tiny face has the wisdom of a man, and he's so insistent that I must let him hug me. I can't explain it fully 
except to say that it seemed like he knew he was supposed to hold me. His beckoning arms and dogged insistence were pretty powerful for a one and a half year old baby. I finally decided to let my baby boy take me in his arms and hold me as long and as tightly as he wished. I lay my head on his chest and quietly rested there in the stillness of his body. He hugged me very close. Slowly, I began to listen to the music on the radio, and a realization began to sweep over me. The song on the radio was, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. The lyrics state, In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. And that is exactly what my baby boy was doing for me, holding me in his arms, offering me solace, as the song gently spoke to my heart. In that moment, I knew something as I'd never known anything before. I stood up and thought, if I don't believe it tomorrow, I believe it today. I knew through the hug of my son and through the lyrics of that song that Jesus himself had answered my prayer. Much like 2,000 years ago, he had chosen to come to me in the form of a baby boy to hold me, to rescue me, and to redeem my life. I believe that was the only day Otis ever tried to hug me while getting his diaper changed. That day opened my eyes to how God wanted me to embrace my identity as a mom. He exposed the old TV spotlight as a false light compared to the light he wanted to develop in my life as a mother. He revealed to me his great love for moms and their holy task of raising up the children he has designed. I felt God showing me and telling me the simple value of being a mom. As that discovery unfolded, I realized that waking up from a nap with my child's arms wrapped around me, filling days with story reading, stroller walks, homemade science experiments, and games of hide-and-seek, pitching endlessly to a young batter and taking trips to the grocery store with a daughter dressed as Princess of the Week, those things were more important to me than rising early to an alarm, grabbing a Starbucks, and rushing off to another day in the TV limelight. This isn't to suggest that I think staying home to snuggle and play with your kids is the only way to be a good mom. This is not a treatise on the superiority of stay-at-home motherhood. Whether you're a mom working at home or away from home, either way you can be a dedicated mom who understands that God created motherhood as a sacred post in the life of a woman. Allow me to use an illustration to prove my point about your mom role being sacred. During my time in television, I won an Emmy Award for my political reporting. Over the years, I have used this Emmy as a prop when giving speeches to various mom groups. I asked the moms in the audience to compare two events that I reenact in front of them. First, I throw down a red carpet, a red towel, and ask the moms to clap for me as I walk down that red carpet with my Emmy Award hoisted in the air. They kindly give me a round of gracious applause. Then, I put my Emmy away and kneel down on the red carpet, which conveniently has become a towel again, I invite one mom from the audience to sit in a chair next to the towel. I then place this mom's feet into a tub of warm water, and I gently wash them, toes, heels, and all. After I complete these two exercises and give the mom the red towel for her feet, I ask the women in the audience a few questions. I inquire, which of those two events, walking the red carpet, or washing the feet, would the world say is more important? They answer, walking the red carpet. Then I ask, which one of these tasks is a mom more likely to do? They know this. They say, wash feet. And finally, I ask, which one of these tasks did Jesus ask us to do? The answer is obvious. And this is just one more proof 
that a mom's work, even when it seems mundane, is sacred. It was like I'd suddenly woken up to the incredible meaning behind family and mothering. When that idea took hold, I made it my urgent mission to spread this message to moms everywhere. I pondered, I prayed, and I produced proposals on what form this new mission should take. One night, I woke up and felt like God gave me the word, Channel Mom. It was a word that carried a double meaning. It would be a literal media channel for moms on TV, radio, and YouTube. And second, it would be a channel of living water, so to speak, offering moms hope, encouragement, and advice. We'd broadcast the importance of motherhood by creating our own channels to do it. Channel Mom Media developed very slowly, from a website into a Denver radio show into a syndicated radio show, and now broadcasting media on various platforms. Today, moms can access our programming all over the world. We became a nonprofit in 2014, still with the goal of ministering to moms through the airwaves, but also providing outreach on the ground. Channel Mom Outreach now provides several services for marginalized moms. Homeless Outreach, assigning mentors to help single moms and their kids transition out of homelessness. Two, Prison Outreach, offering incarcerated moms instruction on inner healing and healthy parenting to stop the cycle of incarceration that typically gets passed down from parent to child. And three, Single Mom Outreach, supporting single moms through bill payments, household goods, and gifts beginning in the Christmas season, but often extending throughout the year. If you've ever had a dream or a goal that seemed like it was never going to happen, I've got something to confess. As I was striving to build Channel Mom into something, it felt like God kept tapping the brakes. I've since realized his divine mercy was in that hold your horses process. Channel Mom grew slowly enough that I had enough time to commit to being a dedicated mom. Ironic, right? I'm type A ambitious and I had planned to build Channel Mom quickly and big, but that would have drawn me away from the important task of being a mom, the very purpose I was promoting. Maybe this gives you hope for the pauses in your life or the years of being on hold. Trust the good reasons behind the slow unfolding. I had the luxury of being able to stay at home and mother my children for many years, partly because my husband was willing to be the sole breadwinner as I slowly built Channel Mom on the side. I was able to dive into a first-hand education on being a mom, first for my children and second for the thousands of moms I aimed to encourage. In those precious mothering years, my family was blessed with lots of joy and laughter, but we also faced some trials. I believe our trials teach us, and we have the opportunity to pass on the lessons we've learned to our children. As trials touched our family, I aimed to capture those teachable moments for our kids. We've been through a school shooting, the loss of close friends, our child's back-to-back -back surgeries, and finally, a breast cancer diagnosis. There were big lessons in each of these that affected and informed my mothering. I think it's so important to turn our problems into teachers for ourselves and our kids. If you instruct your children now to see their trials as teachable moments, it could become a lifelong habit that serves them well. In 2006, my husband Mike was the assistant principal at Platte Canyon High School in Bailey, Colorado. On September 27th of that year, a 53-year-old gunman walked into the school and into a classroom where he took multiple hostages. My best friend, a mom, happened to be visiting the school when the gunman made his entrance. She called me while hiding beneath a desk, whispering over the phone that there was a shooter in the school. 
I didn't believe her. She quietly insisted that she wasn't kidding. She tried to reassure me that my husband was all right, but I later found out that he'd been in jeopardy. A sheriff's deputy who was clearing the halls did not recognize my husband as he approached from the other end of a hallway. So the deputy did his job and drew on my husband. Fortunately, in our small town, all my husband had to say with his hands in the air was, it's Schmitty, it's Schmitty. The deputy recognized the name and lowered his gun. My frightened friend had taken the risk of phoning me as the school went into lockdown, the gunman wasn't in her immediate vicinity, simply to ask me to pray, to get everyone to pray. I hung up and called people to ask them for prayer. We set up a prayer chain of sorts and prayed for the high school, the students, the teachers, and the staff. We prayed for the whole school district. Our son was in the elementary school down the road from the high school. His school was also in lockdown. In all honesty, there were a few moments when I did not know if either my husband or my son was safe. The high school actually had significant security measures in place, but the ex-military killer found a way to skirt the security. In an hours-long ordeal, the gunman narrowed his group of hostages down to six female students. It's not worth sharing the abuse he imposed on those girls. In the end, he kept only one hostage, a girl named Emily Keyes. As the SWAT team broke into the room where Emily was being held, the gunman simultaneously aimed his gun at this 16-year-old girl and shot her in the back. Emily died within minutes, not long after sending her family the now famous text, I love you guys. Emily left behind her twin brother Casey and her parents John Michael and Ellen, who were forced to face life without their beloved sister and daughter. My husband was devastated that the school had lost one of their own. In the months preceding the tragedy, he had some eerie premonitions about the high school being in jeopardy. He and other staff had put into place a number of new security measures. Mike had also proposed additional steps to beef up security, but these were turned down by an advisory group that thought it highly unlikely that a school shooting would ever infiltrate our tiny rural town. But it did, unfolding on the very day our son was turning eight. We had planned a special evening birthday celebration, but Mike had to stay at the school for debriefing with law enforcement. Our little boy didn't understand why his dad couldn't come home for his birthday. In the days that followed the shooting, our young children watched the aftermath. Otis was upset that it had occurred on his birthday, explaining that he wasn't sure he could ever enjoy his birthday again. Our daughter Georgia was only four, but she was deeply aware that our community had suffered a great loss. We cried in front of our kids. We reminisced about Emily's life. My husband had actually gotten to know her one semester when he tutored her in math. We prayed for Emily's family. We mourned with and supported our grieving community. Our children watched this process of dealing with devastating loss. They saw what adults do to help themselves and to support others. They learned about community. They learned about entering into grief on behalf of others. The lessons learned during that difficult time would serve our children well in the years to come. Any tough lessons that unfold in your family's future hold the potential to serve your kids well too. It makes the hard times easier if you can remember that. Fast forward several years to 2010 when our family embarked upon a grueling season of loss. My other very best friend lost her husband in a motorcycle wreck. Honestly, he seemed too strong to die. He'd been a Navy SEAL and a military contractor, strong, brave, true to his family and friends. He was only 36. He left behind my precious friend, only 33, and their two children, ages 12 and 10. This was a season of mourning and giving for our family. 
I remember our son staying very close to my friend's 10-year-old son that first night after his dad had died. Otis insisted on watching over this boy as he slept through the night so that he wouldn't feel alone. In the days that followed, we would sleep in that house often. My kids would play with their daughter and son daily. We'd help with funeral plans and meals, outings and vacations. We'd made a point of being at their home nearly every day for over a year. My kids learned how to go through grief with those who are suffering and to give generously again and again. None of us was perfect in our service to this family, but my kids learned important lessons. In the next few years, we would lose almost a dozen friends and family members. Some died in car accidents, some succumbed to cancer, and two of my son's teenaged friends committed suicide. Again and again, our kids were called upon to step up and minister. I remember one day when my daughter asked, when is it going to stop, mommy, all this death? Partly to reassure myself, I kept telling my kids that God was teaching them and counting on them to help the hurting. He was trusting them to show compassion and grace to those in need. I guess these are the things they needed to learn before they would each face trials of their own. Growing up in a small town, our son Otis had always been labeled a gifted student and was able to stand out as an athlete as well. But when he tore the labrum in his shoulder during a baseball game, he was eventually forced to the sidelines. I should mention that he finished the baseball season pitching with a torn labrum, believe it or not. And he insisted on playing through the football season, too, despite his injury. Following a successful surgery in the winter, his recovery forced him to sit out most of basketball season and an entire season of baseball. Then, a year later, he tore his ACL in his final basketball game as a high school senior. He was devastated to be sidelined once again. And I was a bit devastated that he would have to go through yet another surgery and I would have to trudge through more worry. Now is the time to admit that I have been a lifelong worrier. I have succumbed to fear far too easily. Each time Otis faced a surgery, I would worry that something would go terribly wrong. He tried not to show any signs of worry himself, but I know he felt trepidation too. Beyond his trepidation lay more teachable moments. My son was forced to face the vulnerability of his body and the temporal nature of his athletic career. These were lessons in humility. My son realized what it was like to be the guy on the bench, missing the cheers and accolades. He saw what it felt like to have a body that didn't work the way he wanted. He also realized the degree to which he had derived his self-worth from his athletic and academic achievements. And this mom realized how much pride she'd taken in those same things. As the mom, I had to take a step back and recognize the way in which I'd leaned into my kids' accomplishments sometimes to the detriment of developing their character. Because I was so proud of how well they did in academics and athletics, I sometimes overlooked their need for humility and for grace toward those who didn't share the same gifts, but had unique gifts of their own. I'm not suggesting that we should not cheer on our children and be pleased with their achievements. However, we must not let character be sacrificed in the process. In the last few years, I've tried harder to look beyond academic awards and athletic feats in order to instruct our children to see the unique gifts in others, to be quick to forgive, to offer grace, and to understand the value of making peace. I've also tried to direct their focus toward the virtues of humility and sacrifice. They're still learning, and I'm still teaching and learning. Again, we're not perfect at these things. Still, I was pleased a few years back when my son called from college with a reminder that his character was indeed being shaped. 
He was discouraged about being unable to play football in his freshman year. He was still recovering from ACL surgery. Instead, he was assigned to videotape practices, sometimes in the rain, and also run cameras from behind the bleachers during games. He felt lost and rejected. As he described these feelings to me, he said rather haltingly and perhaps fighting the urge to cry, I think God is trying to teach me humility, Mom. Maybe he is, son. Maybe he is. The year 2018 began with sickness and injury. In January, I went through one of the worst bouts of flu I'd ever experienced, and our daughter Georgia broke her arm in her very first club volleyball tournament. She was shattered by the fact that she would not be able to play volleyball for the rest of the club season. The injury was significant, with complete breaks of the major bones in her forearm. When I learned how serious the breaks were during our trip to the ER, it made me all the more impressed that Georgia had gone back into the volleyball game to try to continue playing. She was tough through the whole ordeal, refusing to cry, even when it took more than two hours to get painkillers. Surgery was scheduled and Georgia was looking forward to getting fixed. I, on the other hand, was nervous. I quickly sank into my debilitating habit of fear and worst case scenario thinking. Georgia had the opposite reaction. She schooled me in the practice of peace and faith. She was joking with the nurses before going into surgery and didn't have any visible signs of concern. She made it through the surgery beautifully. I thanked God profusely and we settled in for the recovery process. As Georgia was recovering, I began watching my 50-something body go through a series of breakdowns, from venous disease to chronic headaches to vision problems to weakness in my arms and legs. Then in the summer, I poked myself in the eye and developed a giant blood blister. Just as I seemed to be running out of ailments, I went in for a mammogram. It had been several years since I'd had one. The process seemed fairly routine until the technicians asked me to stay. After a nervous and lonely time in the waiting room, I was called in to speak to the radiologist. He explained that he believed I had a small cancerous lump in my left breast. I was strangely calm, but I also felt sick and scared. I remember getting details from the office staff about how I should proceed, appointments I needed to make, insurance I needed to arrange. I have a vivid memory of what it felt like to walk back to my car and get in, asking God why he could be allowing such a thing. I was confused and frightened. Fear would haunt me in the days that followed. I informed my husband, not knowing yet how small or large the cancer was. My worst moments came from fear and not from facts. I remember lying in bed the night of the diagnosis and feeling almost catatonic, as if I couldn't move or smile or believe or hope. My mind went dark, fixated on worst-case scenarios and thoughts of leaving my kids behind if I were to die in the coming year. Our 30th wedding anniversary celebration was ahead of us, and we had big plans to go on a Caribbean cruise as a family. I enjoy being a fun and active mom, so I was devastated by the thought of potentially being sickly on the cruise ship. This is the thing about fear. It doesn't tell us the truth. It robs us of hope. But God showed me that fear was wrong and faith came through in the form of a nurse and a radiologist. During the biopsy, while lying on the table, I began to cry. And those two amazing women gently began to rescue me from my fears. The radiologist called the tumor itty-bitty. And the nurse, who had lost her mom to breast cancer many years earlier, told me how fortunate I was to be living in the 21st century. When breast cancer treatment is so effective, they both assured me that I was probably going to live. 
Later, I learned that the cancer was slow growing, had been caught early, stage one, and was not the type that needed chemotherapy. When the lab nurse delivered this good news to me over the phone, I cried happy tears. I think I almost made her cry too. I thanked her profusely and hung up. I then fell to the floor sobbing, loud sobbing, more tears of joy and relief and thanking God for his grace. The next happy tears moment came when my husband and I met with my surgeon, Dr. Jane Kircher, a spunky, effervescent woman of faith. One of the first things she announced to me and my husband was, well, you're not going to die from this. Tears again. We were both immensely grateful and relieved. I must say that I know not everyone receives good news like this. There were days when I almost felt guilty for such a positive prognosis. I hesitated to share it with many people, partly because I didn't want to tell people I had any kind of cancer, and partly because I knew there were people who had suffered through much worse. I was also haunted by the story of Kara Tippetts, featured in Chapter 8. She had been diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer and died at age 38, leaving her four young children behind. I worried that if it happened to Kara, it could happen to me. So despite the reassuring prognosis, irrational fears continued to haunt me. Before my lumpectomy surgery, I was feeling quite afraid. However, on the day of the surgery, I learned an inescapable lesson, surrender. As I lay there in my surgical cap and gown, waiting to be rolled into the operating room, I had a moment of panic. I suddenly thought, I don't want to do this. What if I die on the operating table? What if it doesn't go well? And then I realized that despite my objections, I was in the hands of God and the hands of some well-trained nurses and doctors. I had to trust. I had no other choice. Surgery went well, and radiation was easier than I thought it would be. I was declared cancer-free, and I was a healthy, happy woman on our anniversary cruise. I am newly grateful for the capable women and men in our medical community. I had been somewhat skeptical of traditional medicine, but seeing the effective outcome of my medical treatment helped change my mind. But it didn't cure my nagging fears, which continued to plague me for almost a year after my successful surgery. I fixated on death and the fact that we all must face it someday. I worried about another cancer diagnosis. I worried about worrying. And I feared being fearful. And you know what? I've had it. I'm over it. As a woman who loves the Lord, I've requested that he be the professor of my Overcoming Fear 101 class. I've asked God to make me a woman of faith and not of fear, to bring me to a place of trusting him fully for this life and the next. You know why? Because I want to pass on a legacy of faith to our children, not a legacy of fear. I want them to believe that God is good, that he loves them, and that he is faithful. He has proven faithful again and again in our lives. I am finally walking the long, slow road to completely trusting His faithfulness. I have heard the Holy Spirit whisper words of reassurance and hope to me. I've heard Him assure me that I am well and that He loves me. I have leaned into scriptures like, My grace is sufficient for you. I am the Lord who heals you. And in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Before Jesus left the earth, he assured us that worry was a waste of time and fear was foolish. Do not worry about your life. Do not worry about tomorrow. Do not be afraid and be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I keep my heart focused on my personal belief that Jesus died for death, for sin, for hate, for hurt, and for fear, that he paid for every bad thing in this world, 
where each of us is free to choose to do bad things, that he has a place for us in heaven, where life is better and lasts forever. These are the things I hold on to as I crawl, millimeter by millimeter, away from fear. Faith feels good. It's the better way. And I want to pass it on to my children and to the many moms I minister to. Help me, God. Not only do I seek God's help, I thank him. I'm thankful that he allowed my TV job to be taken away in the midst of turning me into a mom. I'm thankful that he ended up showing me the better thing. In fact, I believe motherhood is often the vehicle God uses to introduce himself to his creation. Caring, nurturing, instructing, loving, redeeming, and rescuing through the hands of a mother. I can even thank God for allowing me to go through the experience of cancer. It was humbling. Even though I'd been a lifelong exerciser, had lots of energy, and thought of myself as a strong woman who helped other people, I came to the end of myself. I needed help from God and people. I had weaknesses, just like everyone else. The cancer equipped me to encourage other moms who have been humbled by their circumstances. Moms in prison, moms who are homeless, moms who are struggling. Please remember that your pain and even your child's pain can have a purpose to identify with others' pain and help them through it. So there it is. I've shared some of the biggest secrets behind my own mothering. It makes me think of the saying that goes, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. I happen to believe most moms want to rule well by being the very best moms they can be. My own mothering secrets and the other moms' secrets that follow, discovered in the midst of fame, fortune, disease, and despair, can help you be the amazing mom you want to be for your own precious kids. My amazing mom secret. Believe that being a mom is incredibly important. Why you are amazing, number one, you mom are the person who keeps life going. You literally keep things alive. Kids, pets, plants. You feed, you nurture, you heal. You are responsible for raising up the next generation. This world depends on your dedication as a mom, even if it doesn't tell you. Hey, if you enjoyed that and maybe you got a little encouragement for yourself, then click below to buy the whole book in print form for yourself or maybe for somebody else. Or go to momyouramazing.com and order the book there. And thank you so much for listening.